Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Liminal Faith podcast. Uh, very excited to be back with you again. I am Helen Cotty, and as usual, I am here with Sherry Lynn. Uh, but also very excited today to introduce you to a good friend of ours, um, the very wonderful Michael Warden. Hello, Michael. Hello. <laughs> Thanks so Michael, Michael is ringing in from uh, one of my favorite places on the earth, which is up in the mountains of Colorado. So I am seeped with jealousy at this point, but we've let him on the podcast anyway. So, you know, whatever. Happy um, to tell you that the weather is gorgeous today, Helen. It's, oh, yes, it is. I went on a two hour hike yesterday in the mountains. Uh, yeah, too bad you're not here. Yeah, you can go right off people, you know, Michael. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> He's only one hour away from me, you know, so I could get there really quickly if I wanted to. Like both right. of you, come on, be kind. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, Michael's going to introduce himself to you in a minute, but for those of you, maybe this is your first time listening into a Liminal Faith podcast, let me tell you a little bit about what Liminal Faith is and what we do. So... We are a gathering of people from all over the place. Um, as you can tell, I have a slightly different accent. So uh, I am over the pond, as it were. Um, so people all over the place who are asking questions of their faith and spirituality. So liminal is about threshold. It's about when you have left one thing, but you have maybe not entered into the new. And for many people, they're at a place in their faith where it's changing and evolving from what it was into something else. And that place can be uh, difficult, it can be quite lonely, it can be hard to find your footing. So we have started to gather together um, through these podcasts, but also on social media uh, in order to support each other in this journey. So if you are a spiritual questioner or wanderer or a nomad or pioneer, you are very welcome. If you are doubting and asking questions, then you are welcome also. Um, if you're somebody who's just curious, then here is a good place to be curious. So however you find yourself here, you are very welcome. And we hope that you enjoy this conversation. So Michael, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about you and maybe some of the work that you do? Absolutely. So thank you guys again for having me today. Um, really excited for wherever this conversation goes. Uh, I am at uh, as uh, Helen said, I am Colorado-based. Uh, what I do here is coaching, uh, do mostly leadership development coaching, some spiritual direction mixed in with that. I tend to work with, um, I guess, a couple of different kinds of people. One, one category might be uh, what we call faith leaders, people who are in positions of um, visible leadership in the in faith communities most of those are christian but not all of them are in my case and then also people who are on the other end of the spectrum are pretty far away from any kind of um established religion but have a high level of influence in the world like some kind of leadership role and they feel like their role is very spiritual but they do not have any particular sort of theology or doctrinology around all that um, but they want to be a good steward of it all the same. So those are kind of who I work with. And I, I work mostly around, um, you know, leadership issues, also issues of impact and influence and balance and pretty much anything that someone in a leadership or influence role would need to, to work on. Um, I will say, just in light of this conversation, since it's the Liminal Faith podcast, I'll say a little bit about kind of where I come from because uh, it will play into where we go. I, I was raised in the south of the United States uh, in the area known as the Bible Belt. My father, um, during much of my life, was a Southern Baptist pastor. And then through much of my, the rest, other part of my childhood was a Southern Baptist missionary, which we now call a church planter. So there's about maybe 60, 70 churches in the south that are uh, there directly relate directly because of my dad's influence. Um, so I was raised in a very strict uh, evangelical context where things were very black and white. Um, <clears throat> and I came to faith early, like when I was five years old and, and, uh, and went down the road of uh, what I guess I call strict, strict evangelicalism um, for much of my early life. In fact, well into my, 
twenties uh, and coming into my thirties. So, so I know that world extremely well. Many of my um, clients are actually in that world, um, and I am no longer in that world. So, uh, so I'm excited to see kind of where we go with that. But just thought you might want to know. That's the uh, that's the the part of the pond that I I crawled out of when I came into adulthood. <laughs> so <laughs> nicely put. Thank you. Yes. No longer a tadpole. You're now. I'm now a full frog. Yeah. Oh, full frog. <laughs> so um, we had a conversation uh, about what Mike was going to talk about because um, he he's journeyed this journey well and um. I wouldn't be surprised if you hear his voice uh, more than once. <laughs> um, but one of the things that he mentioned was like, um, I'd love to talk about this idea of we're all wrong. And uh, as soon as I read that on the email, I was like, oh man, that's the thing. <laughs> let's, let's go there. Um, and the reason that it kind of stood out to me was because from the tradition that all three of us come from, which is uh, evangelicalism, so much of it is built on certainty and rightness and having the, the right answer and the right stance. And um, that whenever there is something which is wrong, you give a right answer and it makes it all better and makes it all certain. And so just reading those three words were all wrong, just stirred something in me. Uh, and I was like, okay, this is the place where we can have that conversation. So, mm. um, Mike, where would you start with that, this, this idea of we're all wrong? Yeah, exactly. Um, where would I? <laughs> so I, I, I suppose I'd start with my own story around it. And, you know, perhaps not ironically, it, uh, my first encounter with that concept came out of uh, a deeper study of my own faith. Um, mm. You know, reading into like the desert fathers and the desert mothers or the the, the, the writings from the first couple of hundred years um, after uh, Jesus uh, went back to heaven, um, we're all speaking to this point of the transcendence of God on some level or another. And the, the basic idea of that is that everything that we know about him is an approximation um, because, because by the Christian idea of what God is, um, the, the evangelical idea of what God is, is that he is infinite right? So he's infinite goodness, he's infinite um, wisdom, he's, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, all those qualities that we were taught growing up. And by definition, what that actually means is that we can only approximate our understanding of what he's actually like. So when I think of him as good, even my idea of good is very limited. And when I get to heaven someday, and I see him face to face, as, as Paul talked about in Corinthians, my first reaction, I think the first reaction of anybody is going to be, oh, this is what you're, oh, now I see. We're going to realize that what we have known is very, very limited. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's just a kind of natural, humble stance, even for an evangelical to take around the notion of what is knowable or not knowable about God, where, how right can you be um, around him? Uh, so that's where it kind of comes from. And then the, the, the at least for me, it, it birthed into this much more generous, um, grace-filled way of engaging myself and the rest of the world um, in terms of belief systems and uh, what people think about other faiths, all that kind of stuff. Because um, at the end of the day, God has set it up um, in, in such a way that, that we don't know the whole story. So I can be graceful with myself in the ways that I don't know the whole story. And it also allows me to retain my humanity when I'm engaging someone who was born in Syria and raised Muslim and has a very different idea about what God is. I can, I can retain my humanity with him or her and let her also be human. Like we can both be in the place of not knowing and still, um, and without rejecting what we believe at the same time. Yeah. So I'm curious for you with your history in the Southern Baptist tradition. Um, <laughs> what am I trying to ask? How do you do that? How, how do you hold an openness when 
Um, so I'm speaking as somebody outside of that. I, I, I don't know Southern Baptist. It's not what I experienced, but it seems, it seems narrower. Um, it seems like uh, it's not okay to hold uh, an openness towards other faiths or the religions or their experiences. Um, so I may be doing a disservice there, but it, it seems like the two would be incompatible. Yeah, there is a, there's a draw in recent decades within, within all of evangelicalism toward an absolutism of faith. And mm -hmm. that, I guess one thing that's important to know is that that didn't really come about even in evangelical circles until the early parts of the, of the 20th century. So uh, you and I were born into a, a belief system that's actually fairly recent, you know, in, in terms of the 2000 year history of Christianity. And that prior to that, evangelicalism uh, was, was in itself much more generous, different, different kind of perspective. So on the one hand, I'd say, yeah, that's true for Southern Baptists today, probably not true in some of the original ways that they were formed. Although um, <clears throat> I only recently found out uh, to my, I suppose, shame that this is the case, but you know, Southern Baptists actually started back in the days of the Civil War. And they, they started because of a theological difference with the Northern Baptists around the biblical, um, the biblical stance on slavery uh, and whether or not slavery was allowed or not scripturally. So the Southern Baptists, my heritage, was born out of the belief that scripturally slavery was okay. Wow. So, so even that idea, like even that notion, I was never told that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> growing up for, I guess, for obvious reasons, because it's not exactly a point of pride um, mm -hmm. within Southern Baptist thought. Um, but to your question, I'd say the, the way that I have come to, I guess, step out of that absolutism um, is because of of scripture. I mean, one of, one of the ways that Southern Baptists have actually... Um, I, I hate to say it this way, but sort of like screwed themselves in, in the way that they raise you, it both teach the way they raised me, both teaching me this sort of absolutist idea um, and saying, but the priesthood of the believer means that, that God speaks to you directly through scripture and you must study scripture. So I studied scripture. And what I found in scripture was that the picture of what it means to be uh, a follower of Christ was very different from this sort of absolutist idea. Um, like just this morning I was reading out of Galatians where Paul says, you know, circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. That's the only thing that matters. So if I read that statement and then I look at, well, yeah, but you also have to be anti-gay and you also have to be anti-abortion and you also, like that's actually not what scripture says. Yeah. So, so for me, it came into just, uh, I guess, diving into what it actually says in scripture and taking a look at how that interpret, how I interpret that into my life. Mike, I love that you, so I'm Southern Baptist in background as well. That's how I grew up. And I love the way you just characterize the tension of that existence of, um, I hadn't thought of it from that angle, but you're so right that it, they, um, Southern Baptists are so strong and pointing out, like pointing to priests of the believer, as you said, and really leading you to scripture um, and really even kind of personal interpretation of scripture because of priesthood of the believer that held in tandem with these beliefs that are hard to read, are hard for, were hard for me to find in scripture directly. Um, the ones that you just mentioned are some that that is such a beautiful picture uh, or an accurate picture, not a beautiful picture, but an accurate picture of what that tension feels like to live in the midst of. And I remember even from childhood wrestling with these things, but not knowing even how to name the tension to know the different sides of the wrestling. But I felt always a dis-ease and my being of like it, something always felt off on either side and I could never place what it was. So um, that's a really great description of how that feels like. And I also love your statement about the freedom that comes in 
holding the view that we are all wrong and embracing all of humanity, which I could always feel was kind of this under an, un, an underlying essence of what following Christ was always supposed to be about. And you're right to mention that it's, you know, it wasn't always lived out in um, a Southern Baptist context, even in the case of how it was rooted in slavery. So um, anyway, just thanks so much for drawing that out. Cause that even helps me understand my own upbringing even more. Exactly. Yeah. And for me too, like the John three sixteen, which was drilled into us as kids, uh, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it, it really, the very premise of it is that God loved the world. Mm. And, so, and so, so the notion that I can actually be a, a Christian in the classic sense that I was brought up in meant that I had to love the world. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, so the fact that the, wherever the religious sort of constructions that happened around different doctrines or theologies or people groups or whatever, wherever that stopped being about loving the world, I felt um, an internal dissonance with that. It just didn't make sense to me that I should not love them. Like even when, um, when I was a kid, and this is an interesting story of, of Southeast Texas, so uh, where I grew up, which is a very um, traditionalist kind of, kind of place even today. But when I was a kid, um, my sister had a friend named Danny who was about, my sister's three years older than me, and so she had a friend in school named Danny, who I knew, but uh, didn't know well. It was one of my sister's friends. And one night, um, in the middle of the night, uh, I, I was awakened by noise in the house and came out to, I snuck up to the, to the living room and Danny was there. It was like one or two in the morning and my dad was there talking with him and my sister was there because she was friends with him. And I found out, um, you know, and I was probably 11 at the time. Uh, I might've been 12, but <clears throat> I found out that he had been caught uh, at a makeout, in a makeout place um, in the town we lived in where kids went to go make out. And uh, he'd been caught there making out with another guy. And he, so because of that, that very night, he packed up everything and was leaving town for good. And, and he came to my dad, uh, basically just to kind of get help with who he could connect with in the next city or next town. So he wouldn't be um, by himself. And, and it, it struck me even then of, first of all, proud of my dad that he, that he, he loved the guy and didn't reject him. But also at the same time, like, why isn't our church taking him in? You know, why, why aren't we protecting him if, if that's what love would do? So I didn't understand. My 11-year-old, 12-year-old mind didn't understand, um, you know, to the, child, the childishness, which actually Jesus talks about as being not always a terrible thing <laughs> to be childlike. Uh, it, should, it should have extended to him. Um, so, and it didn't, you know. So it sounds like early on there was this kind of internal dissonance when... Uh, you moved away from this idea that you, you actually found in the scriptures. And it's interesting that um, a number of people, it seems to be the scriptures that sends them off kilter. But for you, there was something in there that uh, gave you kind of a true north. But you, you would be able to feel it if when it played out in reality, it didn't match up with that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I don't want to say that I, I mean, I don't know that I'm sure I was wrong about a lot. So at the same time, but I did smell a rat. Um, you know, like that phrase, I smelled a rat. I didn't know where the rat was, but something was wrong with the way things were going. However, my experience of God uh, directly, my sense of his presence with me, um, all of that never felt that way. It never felt like uh, judgmental or in any way condemning or uh, it just wasn't the experience I had. Um, head of that. So it's like when I think Richard Rohr says, if you, if you go look at all the mystics, everyone who in history, who's ever pursued God intimately, they always encounter a lover, not, not a, like a despot. And that's, and for me, that was like, okay, it has to be about this because this is everything I experience of God uh, that I can, that I can name. It's always about love and acceptance and somehow transformation that comes out of that. And you discovered your inner mystic early, even in the Southern Baptist context, didn't you, Mike? 
I did, yeah. I mean, I, I myself uh, was a victim of abuse when I was a kid. Um, and so I, ha and it was a, again, because of the religious environment I was in, there was a ton of shame around, there's probably a ton of shame anyway, but like even more shame probably around in that religious context to not ever talk about it, um, to not ever, to try to make it as if it didn't happen. And, and so my only refuge as a child was uh, Jesus. Um, and thankfully, uh, my experience of God, my mystical, if you want to call it that, kind of experience of God early on was significant enough that it rescued me, that it saved me um, from self-destruction. So, so yeah, I, I found my inner mystic earlier, kind of like a, I mean, early in life, sort of like a lifeline, literally, that kept me afloat, kept me from self-destructing um, because of what had happened. So I discovered my mysticism later, like college years, but I remember um, finding a lot of dissonance even in that of m the mystical way of experiencing God and um, my Southern Baptist context. Um, there was a lot of dissonance um, even in that. Um, did you experience the same or was did you find an easy way to hold both of those growing up so young? You know, I did. I, I was uh, quiet about the mystical part of things too, um, because in the context where I grew up, that wasn't really something you talked about. It was sort of like uh, there was a lot of stuff written about it, uh, but in terms of everyday conversation, it wasn't, uh, somehow I knew it wasn't welcome. I did, I did have a conversation with my dad at one point about um, the gifts of the spirit. I wanted to understand why the Southern Baptist church that I was in anyway, didn't believe in speaking in tongues or any of the other kinds of gifts of the spirit. And my dad, uh, you know, explained to me that those were first generation evidences of the kingdom of God, uh, that they died with the apostles and that they and now we have the scripture, so we don't need those things. And, um, and I remember even as a 15 year old, or 16 year old asking those questions, I, I walked away and went, that just doesn't sound right. I mean, <laughs> you know, in terms of how, if you're going to advance, if you're going to bring the kingdom of God into the world, of course you still need the evidences of that kingdom, you know, like healing and life and all that kind of stuff. And so even though I had never experienced anything like super natural in the traditional charismatic sense, um, uh, I, I couldn't imagine it not being a part of God, like the experience of God. Um, and my own, it, it's like there, nothing precluded it. There was nothing in, that I could read in scripture or in my own experience that said this shouldn't be there. Um, so, yeah. So it sounds like the mystics or the mystical mind has been uh, a part of your experience, part of your life a long time, but also I'm assuming that would have been an important voice um, into this idea of we're all wrong, which reminds me so much of the apophatic tradition, the kind of negative theology of the, you know, God is not, which is just what you were speaking to before, I guess. Of like, There's no way that we can fully understand God. So we have to hold the negative and the positive, the nots as well as the what we do know. But it. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm no expert on this, but it seems from what I've read that that was a big part of mysticism, certainly historically, that then seemed to get lost along the way. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious, do you think it is that uh, alignment with mysticism that maybe brought this up for you? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Even though I didn't know that term or I didn't know the theology of it um, early on. But I would say that, you know, for, for those of us listening who are disenchanted with their, if their Christian tradition is how they grew up and are disenchanted with that, they may find, a, like I have, a lot of solace and a lot of comfort in the mystical traditions of Christianity, which go all the way back to the beginning and which have been highly revered, even though in our Western mindset, they're minimized a lot, obviously, like we're we're in rational cultures who don't really give a lot of um, credence to the more uh, subjective experiences of God. But, uh, but mysticism really does hold a theology, a belief system that, that is so much more generous. And as you say, Helen, like it allows for us to be wrong without having to let go of what we know. 
Um, so I can know, for example, that the, that the, the, the force that I encountered uh, and have encountered through my life is Jesus. Like I can be very confident that the one I have encountered is Jesus. But that doesn't mean that someone who, let's say, was born in Thailand and who has a Buddhist sort of background and who, encounter, who has a mystical experience of her own um, and doesn't name that Jesus, that doesn't mean that I have to then negate her experience. I don't have to. Um, because I also know that my experience of Jesus is limited and that he is way bigger than anything I have known or named. So I, I can't say with absolute certainty that he could not appear to her with a different name, with a different sort of presence, one that's more attuned to her culture and her uh, upbringing, and it still be the same God. Um, I can't say that. Because I, I don't, because I, because mysticism allows for that kind of breadth of I don't know, and it's okay that I don't know. You are explaining my life to me. <laughs> no, it's funny because I'm seriously like relate to so much of it. So I'm aware of that is so true. Like my first um, mystical experiences, my porch moment, Helen. You're just You're, we should tell that story. No, we should not. It's been told way too many times. Um, anyway, that moment was, uh, it's, it was part of the, like a radical shift on so many levels, but even in the way that I was able to hold all of these other religious traditions, it was the beginning of that. And I hadn't, realize why until you just told me why mm. um, like but you're right because so much of what my uh, at least my experience as a southern baptist um this I'm, I'm sure is not true for everyone but my experience was my faith was so much um theologically based it was very much belief because of the foundational um holding foundationally to scripture and its importance like that was it was all in the like sort of intellectual theological belief realm my faith was anyway um and so it was a worldview that was con conflicted as we've mentioned and not perfectly cohesive which always like i smelled a rat too yeah um, right so and it never landed well with me but because of that like this methodology of intellectual theological holding of my faith and noticing all the inconsistencies. It was a very uncomfortable locating of faith in myself, but it yeah. became much easier for me to be with it all. Even the things that I grew up learning, once I had that, my first experience, there was a framework for me to to connect, oh, this thing, this thing that feels realer than anything, um, that experience can be true in a lot of different statements. Like I can make a lot of statements about it and they, it, their truth or falsity aren't even directly relevant to this experience. They are, they're related, but they're not, they don't, they can't negate it or, um, you know, it's, it's just different. It's a different realm. And I, um, you said really eloquently why that is um and even i love the connection to the apophatic tradition that helen just brought up so anyway um i feel like i'm seeing myself from a whole new lens <laughs> <laughs> that's great <laughs> yeah i have um i mean i suppose one of the big revelations for me uh in terms of my upbringing and in terms of i suppose general evangelical thought and it might also apply to any other belief system that is that is built in the same way that it's about rightness you know like uh, right doctrine or right theology and that that that's what determines whether or not you're in or out and and that is i don't i could i could i could make a pretty good argument for that's not what jesus intent was that the the system of the kingdom of god the whole in, 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 introduction of it and invitation of it was an invitation to transformation not to not to right theology uh, and, and so, so if I have as a goal um, my own transformation toward wholeness, toward the idea that God, like when God dreamed of me, what did he dream? What was the high dream he had? And if my life is transforming toward that, and that's the actual goal of my faith, 
then it suddenly becomes much less critical whether or not I actually have dotted the I's and crossed the T's on every theological idea that I'm coming across in the process. It, it still matters because I believe God wants to be known. That's one of the one of the suppositions I make about about my faith journey is that God wants to be known, um, and it is an assumption I'm making. I admit that, but uh, so it matters that I have some semblance of what is true or untrue. But it is not the primary point. I think about the the guy on the cross with Jesus who. Uh, all he had to do was just say, hey, remember me, and suddenly he's in. And it, there was no class about, wait a minute, let's make sure you got the four spiritual laws correct, because um, I'm not sure you're in unless you know those four tenets. Um, that's just not how it worked in that context, and I believe it's not how it works with, with humans today. So in that sense, your like, subjective experience of God, if it produces, in my mind, if it moves you toward Mm -hmm. um, a, a positive transformation toward wholeness, then there's already an inherent value in that that, uh, that is part of the kingdom of God, whether or not your, your interpretation of it is perfectly accurate, which it's not going to be. And it helps you to locate the rat, right? Because the rat is the place where you, can, you feel transformation is thwarted or reversed. Yes, exactly. So um, I know a lot of people who are connected to liminal faith um, are in a place where there is a dissonance with the religious system they grew up with. And for many people, that is the Christian church. Um, so there's a something they came across where they were like, like, I can't be with that view or that worldview or that uh, statement. And it often seems to be about who's in and who's out. Um, and particularly when there are whole groups of people who are out and that feels very dissonant. Um, and this obviously opens up a whole different way of looking at it, which is just because the way that I see it is this way doesn't mean the way somebody else sees it is therefore wrong. But what would you say to people who are in that place? Because uh, one thing that seems to be true about when you get to the point where you question that is it's, it can be quite lonely. You can lose community. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you have any wisdom to throw in there, particularly because you come from a church background and then there will have been a, a questioning of some of that and, and how that played out for you. And then is there any wisdom you'd throw in here? Hmm. That's a beautiful question. Um, I, I don't know if I have a lot of wisdom to throw in there, but I, I will say I, I again go back to Jesus as a, um, for me, a kind of, a kind of plumb line, a touchstone uh, to help me navigate this. One of the one of the things he said was that you know them by their fruit. Mm -hmm. So so I, when I look at the, I was raised under the the kind of in the lens of you know them by their theology, hmm. and and th that I reject. I don't actually believe that is true anymore. Um, because of the, the rat we talked about, because I've met too many people who have absolutely the correct theology, but look nothing like the Jesus that I know um, in the way that they behave in their life. And I know other people who have completely wrong, quote unquote, theology, who look very much like the Jesus that I know. And so what I have come to kind of, I've taken that lens off and put on a new lens, which is you will know them by their fruit. Um, and so I look at, you know, the question of, uh, it's all well and good that you have this system of belief, but I want to know what is your life producing? And I look specifically for um, the fruit of the spirit. So uh, love, joy, peace, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, like those things, um, if they are being produced by whatever it is you're doing in your life and however it is you're engaging other people, and if they're being produced in increasing measure, then I say, well, that's the kingdom. Because it says clearly in scripture, that's the fruit of the spirit. So capital S, meaning it has to come from God, that that stuff comes from God. So if that is where the kingdom is, then that's where I want to be. And, it, and if it's somebody in India who's feeding the poor of the lower caste systems and, he, and he's a Hindu, 
Um, and he's still bringing love, joy, peace. Oh, he's bringing that stuff. Then I'm like, okay, that guy is in the kingdom. I don't understand about his theology, but that I'm, I know him by his fruit. And I can say the opposite then about someone who has great influence within our traditional religious system. But when you look at, and even, even you could say compelling arguments about uh, his or her theology, but when you look at what is, what is his life, what is her life producing in the world, what is the effect of that person in the world? If it's not the fruit of the spirit, then I go, nope, that's not, that's not the kingdom. Um, so I'm perfectly okay to then reject that as being like, whatever that is, is not what I want to be a part of. And I, and I find my family and my place of belonging anywhere that these things are being produced in the world. I don't know if that helps, but it's, it's that idea of, I guess, just not, I'm not, I'm not an orphan. I just have redefined what family means for me. That's really good. Really good. I, one of the things um, <clears throat> that I've really struggled with in recent years in my journey is um, it's very, uh, it's very common for church to tell you that, it, you know, we're not just a church, we're a family. Um, but then to be on the receiving end of being asked to remove yourself from that because your theology doesn't align. Um, it's, it's very painful when you've been told this is a place of family, but actually you don't get to be a part of it because you think something differently. Mm-hmm. So I love the idea of claiming family based around um, aligned fruit <laughs> rather than <laughs> aligned theology or belief. I'm like, that for me feels so uh, resonant and so just open, just kinder just more loving, more grace-filled, more of the things that I saw in the person of Jesus. Mm. Therefore, more like what his kingdom feels like it could be. So, yeah, that's really helpful. Mm. I'm kind of curious um, about the that foundation of observing fruit. Wait, so what if someone were to... Um, challenge that place of like those aren't the right fruits or um what you know like what where do you go in that dialogue of like if that's kind of your bedrock foundation of i look for because you reference scripture the christian scriptures to do that to love joy peace patience like what if someone were to challenge which things should be on that list or like, how do you hold that conversation yeah that's a good question like people do like that um even within evangelical circles fruit is conversions you know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's really about, are you, are you sharing your faith and winning people over through conversions? Um, you could also make an argument about humility being in that list, um, which is not one of the quote unquote fruits of the spirit, but it is obviously an evidence of a transformed life. Um, I, I don't know. I think uh, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in arguing the point, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, in the, in the sense of if somebody, if somebody from an evangelical stance or an apologist came to me and said, what about, you know, um, you have to name the name of Jesus, for example, in order to enter the kingdom. Um, you have to, like conversion is the, is the goal. And I, I'd be like, I absolutely agree with the principles underneath those two statements, <laughs> but your effect of it, like the guy who's, if it's kind of like this tick mark where the person in front of you prayed this particular prayer and they used the name of Jesus, therefore that's a win. And if they didn't name the Jesus, name Jesus explicitly, then it's not a win. Um, that I take issue with because I just don't, um, I, my conception of the vastness of God does not allow me to put him in that small of a bottle. So I, I, I can't say, well, I don't know if there's a guy in Tonga who falls on his face because something has happened in his life and he cries out to the God of his ancestors and he, and he pours his heart out to that God and he lays down his life to that God. And then his life is transformed after that moment. Can I say that that's not Jesus? Can I say that's not God? No, I, I really, I, I, I'm not in a place where I can say that. Maybe the guy who's, the, who's very right, maybe he can say that. Um, but that's not my place. And I love that you shifted the um, method of con- conversation there from, I'm not interested in arguing the point, which is kind of to take it back to that theological, intellectual, like, 
um, belief place and it was more about it sounded like you shifted the methodology more to observation and sort of this ex almost like um, experience of of the good yeah and then I would I guess that's I'm curious about that too from like let's say the conversation was, or the um, shared experience was broadened past the evangelical circle and it was you know you are having a conversation with someone who is coming from a hedonistic perspective. So pursuit of pleasure is the ultimate good. Mm -hmm. um, so in that conversation, like what, you know, so I could imagine someone saying, yeah, that's actually a good point. Let's, let's, um, let's base what should be pursued or what should be followed or, Pat, our life patterned after or however you want to frame that thing after um, fruit. Um, and I assume what you mean by fruit is the good following the good. So um, here's what I think the good looks like. I think it looks like maximizing pleasure for myself and others, you know, like anyway, so what, like, and that, even that broader outside of the evangelical conversation, I'm curious, because um, I, I share your view um, with the, that it very much aligns with mine, but I can imagine that um, conversation as well, you know, so like, how do you find, I guess maybe I'm asking about your view of maybe it was, whether it's moral law or like, what is that, um, you don't come from a theological basis of, here's where we find common ground. There's a different one. And I'm trying to understand the nature of that foundation. That's not theological, but something else. And it seems like it's tapping into the good and values and fruit. But um, that's yeah. where my question's coming from. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, you're right. It's a great question. So the, I'll take the hedonist as an example of um, if someone were to come to me and say something like that of absolutely agree with you and what I think is the greatest good is my own pleasure. Uh, if I perceived that they were an honest seeker, you know, just the idea of uh, I'm actually wanting to know what the ultimate truth is, not I'm sort of just self-deceiving because it's convenient. Yeah. Then I would say, okay, go for it. Like go, go and turn hedonism up to a 10 and, um, and learn what you need to learn. I mean, that's exactly what Solomon did in uh, the book of Proverbs. And because he was an honest seeker, it took him to the larger truth that you actually can't find fulfillment in hedonism ultimately, because you're, we're, we're wired to give ourselves over to a, to, a, to a power and a purpose that's greater than ourselves. That's how we actually find fulfillment. And so, um, so I know if I think somebody is actually just on the path of transformation and they're, they're going to take this little road that goes over to hedonism i'm like okay <laughs> go i mean that sounds uh, in a way very heretical um to maybe my evangelical brothers and sisters but i have a deep inherent trust in the holy spirit's ability to teach his children mm -hmm. and so if someone is actually genuinely interested in finding out what the truth is and they're pursuing it even an atheist i would say the same thing too mm -hmm. of go ahead, pursue that, and keep your mind and heart open to the possibilities that you may be wrong, uh, which is nothing more than I'm asking of myself. Mm -hmm. So, in, but what I, in answer to your larger question of what's the end goal, <laughs> here I sound just like, any, the end goal is Christ-likeness. So, I'm, <laughs> for me, I, I, I believe that when Jesus talked about, you know, the notion of um, uh, lay down your life, like the, the one who lays down his life and follows me is the one I'm looking for. That that is, uh, in essence, this kind of another way of saying, um, when God dreamed of you, there was a particular dream. He has a, a desire for how you move into the whole, the full expression of who He made you to be, and that that will be Christ-likeness. It will be your own version of it because there's never been a you in the history of humankind before. 
And so you're going to reflect God in a way that no one ever has. You're going to actually know him in a way that no one has ever known him. That's the whole point of the diversity of humanity because God is infinite. So he, he has the capacity to meet each of us in this very unique way. But wholeness is still going to look like what we might call Christ-likeness for each of us. So that's what I'm aiming toward. You know, when I, when I tell someone that, I'm still in my mind thinking, if he's moving toward Jesus, even if he doesn't say that name, I'm okay with it. I love that view that lived experience is the best teacher because it, it's so true. Like you, when given freedom to pursue the thing that you think will, you know, bring happiness or whatever your goal is, like you can feel it in your own life, like what's working and what isn't, um, you know, like the lived experience is the best teacher. Like there's so much wisdom there. Uh, and you can, it's, it, it's hard to argue your own experience. Like, you know, like I'm, oh, I'm just not fulfilled in this area. That's like an immediately grabbable conversation of like, this part's off or wow, I'm like, this part's amazing, you know, past any kind of understanding. It's just that the wisdom of lived experience. Well, and to your point, it's like the, the goal of becoming whole is a very different goal than becoming right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So the, so the whole system within the religious community, and it's probably any religion, not just um, conservative evangelicalism, but the goal of that is about rightness, and it has to do with status. It's, mm -hmm. it's, the, it's not really about transformation. It's about um, if I, how do I demonstrate that I am not just on the in, I'm in the in-group, but I'm in the inner circle of the in-group then there are certain structures set up around theology and practice, um, even dress code, and even coming down to um, where you live, how you live, how you talk, all of those things that are status markers that have to do with religion. And I think that's where we have a lot of appropriate dissonance because something in our hearts, something in our souls tells us that's not the right game to be playing. That actually doesn't take us anywhere meaningful mm -hmm. um, and but this other idea of transformation uh, by its very essence requires lived experience you yeah. you cannot be transformed until you step out of your comfort zone into discomfort and allow something to have an effect on you um, and that means risk and that means being wrong um, much of the time but also finding your way to deeper truth in the process a life of wholeness is intrinsically motivating. Isn't it though? I mean, who doesn't want that? Yeah. Um, Mike, I'm curious, just as we start to kind of wrap this up, um, if this is new for somebody, where would you point them? Like, they've never even heard that it's okay to question, that it's okay to believe outside of the, the bubble that they were raised in, the idea of even recognizing that we're wrong rather than we're there that we're right um this is new 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 territory so what would you say how how do you how do you even broach this thing if this isn't part of the way that you were raised mm. wow so i mean it depends on the belief system right of the person as they as they come to that edge um so it'd probably be i'd probably say something different to someone who is in a muslim world as opposed to a Christian worldview or something like that. But for, mm -hmm. I, I suppose in a general sense, I would say notice where your curiosity and your fear meet um, and uh, take a small step. And I mean small step in that direction. Because uh, what, what can sometimes happen for folks is there, there's a baby bathwater issue of um, <laughs> ta taking everything that they have known and because it's tainted, throw the entire thing away. Um, and that can leave them without any mooring at all. And what I, what I would say is, uh, instead of that, look for the edge of what you have known that is not so far out that it sort of just flushes everything you've known away, but takes you a little bit out of your comfort zone. I'll give you an example. I was at a conference in California recently that was, um, a mix of all kinds of different 
uh, what we call transformational workers. So people who are in different contexts around the world and they are doing um, life on life work to help people get healed and become whole. So it's, you know, like counselors and coaches and social workers and all that. And there was a gal who came from, from um, Utah who uh, is in, is had grown up in a very entrenched Mormon environment. And she is, um, she has a beautiful heritage with her family. She has beautiful, there's a lot about Mormon upbringing that is actually quite lovely. Um, but she smells a rat and she wants to know what's outside. So one of the things she did was she went to this conference and she just sat and listened. Um, so she's not throwing, she's not leaving her family. She's not throwing everything away. She's just taking a step outside of her comfort zone that feels risky without being, uh, without throwing her into a panic. Um, so I'd say that probably if, if you're coming out of a Christian background, um, then I'd say one of the best things you can do is go, is go back to the gospels and do your best to pretend there is no such thing as Christianity. Um, that that's all a construct and just go read what Jesus said. Um, and then see what that tells you. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love it's just I love the idea of uh, of not throwing it all out. And we've we've talked a few times about this uh, transcend and include thing that um, Cheryl and I came across. And it feels like the healthy way to move forward, where you transcend beyond the boundaries of the thing that kept you stuck, but you include things like things get to go with you, um, which is not an easy journey, but seems to be the way of wholeness and health. I think. Um, yeah, because, uh, I mean, there's more than 30,000 different denominations in the United States, for example, and mm. most of the uh, Christian denominations, and most of those are, I'd say maybe all of those, are the result of uh, reactive response. So at some point, you know, somebody didn't like something about a particular way that something was done, and so they reacted to it by creating their own little um, circle of holiness, uh, and uh just from the stance of we're all wrong, um, the notion of transformation means that there's, there's probably things you're wrong about when you judge the system you came from. Mm. Uh, so if you can be humble about it and, and include the fact that you have a lot of dissonance and there's probably still some beauty there uh, and just see where that takes you, that can be much more useful for transformation than just reacting against uh, something that has hurt you. It's hard to do, but that's part of growing up. It's a more mature response. So good. So good. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, this was a brilliant conversation, Mike. Uh, mm -hmm. So glad that you wrote down we're all wrong in an email. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's just so important. Like already I'm thinking, oh man, I've so lost that even. It's been quite a quick journey for me coming out of a tradition already I'm like wow how much have I assumed rightness in the finding of wrongness <laughs> mm. uh, it's kind of easy to forget to do that so um thank you for kind of highlighting that and yeah bringing in such wisdom around it so that's been a joy thank you yeah yeah so if people wanted to uh, get in contact with you find out more about what you're doing um where's the best place to find you is it website or social media or what's the I, thing? yeah you can find all you need to know at uh, michaelwarden.com mm -hmm. w-a-r-d-e-n like game warden um and <laughs> uh, and from there you can find you know my twitter my uh facebook and all that other stuff brilliant well thank you again and uh we will see you all soon